Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Continuing this morning in our series, The Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ and working through the book of John. John chapter 3 and verse 1. And I want to say before I read this, because we're going to talk about, the Scripture is going to talk about a Pharisee. And I think a lot of times people get the idea that Pharisees were these lofty, wealthy people, kind of an aristocrat position, and that was not the case. Uh, The Sadducees were. So we talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Scripture, and sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. We see those in the New Testament. Uh, They were very different. The Pharisees, there were about 6,000 of them at the time of Jesus, they typically were lower to middle class people. They were not wealthy people. Uh, They worshipped in the synagogues, not the temple. They didn't think the temple life uh, was as important. Uh, And the version or the type of Judaism that is practiced today is much like what the Pharisees taught. Uh, But the Pharisees, they they were different in the Sadducees in the sense that the Sadducees uh, we're wealthy people. You were probably wealthy if you were a Sadducee. And if you were a Sadducee, you were, uh, you were all about the temple life. You thought that it should happen in the temple, not the synagogue. So there were some really distinct differences there. Now they did, and you read about this in the crucifixion of Jesus. They have this court that's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 35 Pharisees and 35 Sadducees, and they had a high priest that headed them. And in the event of a tie, when they voted, the high priest would be the tiebreaker. Uh, But this Sanhedrin court really governed the life and the rules for what the Jewish people did. So to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee and sit on this panel of people was a very influential position, but only a few of those did. There were a lot of Pharisees uh, in that day. So religious people, uh, but not, I think a lot of times people get the idea that this is like an upper class or an aristocrat, and that's just not the case with the Pharisees. So we're reading about a Pharisee this morning named Nicodemus. In verse 1, he was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And this is the Word of God. So a little groundwork this morning about what we're going into. I will preach at least one more sermon on John 3, maybe two, I don't know yet. But the new birth, it's just such a, there's so much here that there's no way you could unpack it all in one sermon. Uh, you couldn't unpack it all in 10 sermons, but at some point you, you have to stop and move on. But I want to talk a little bit this morning before we get into this text about 
why we preach this way and why we, we do what we do uh, in this setting. And that is why theology is important and what it is. Theology simply is what we think and know about God. And you don't know anything about God without the Scriptures. We have what is called general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is why people who live in the jungles who have never met any other people outside their tribe still worship. They still practice a religion because there is something innate inside of mankind that says there's something bigger than me. So they look into the sky and they say, you know, I've, I've got to worship the sun or I've got to worship the moon or whatever uh, because they understand that there is a God. But they don't know anything about God. They don't even know He's good. We wouldn't know that God is good if it wasn't for the Bible. This is what we call the special revelation. And what we believe about anything in life is vital. Viktor Frankl uh, wrote a book about the meaning of life and the meaning of man in 1946. Frankl was an Austrian Holocaust concentration camp survivor who wrote the book right after he left the camp. And it was a worldwide bestseller for decades uh, because it's the story of a man who was in this camp that survived. But more than just the story, it was why they were in the camp. And Frankel said, I am convinced that the concentration camps did not begin in Berlin, in Nazi Germany, but they began in the lecture halls of teachers and philosophers who taught certain kinds of philosophy. And that philosophy was this idea that life is meaningless. There, there is no meaning in life. And so if that's true, then human beings have no value. And so if you get into this belief system, which is what embraced that time period in that part of the world, then it's no big deal if you exterminate six million Jews because they don't have any value. Why, why would I let that keep me up at night? Uh, now that to us, that's hard to wrap our heads around, but to them, uh, it all started with in a classroom, with an ideology, with an idea. It's that ideas have consequences and what we believe matters. The Bible has specific meanings. Each text has a meaning. It has many applications, but it only has a, a general meaning of what the author intended it to have. I had a man say to me this week, he said, you know how it is when you go to church and you hear the preacher unpack a scripture? He said, then you take it and you determine what it means to you. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not how it works. You don't get to decide the meaning of the text. The meaning is set by the author. God has an intentional, specific meaning for the text. Many applications, but the text has a meaning. And reading this text this morning, it has a meaning. And we want to learn to view life in the world and have a worldview that is embraced by Scripture. We all have... Everybody, I don't care who they are, everybody has this embedded theology. This just this ideas that come that you inherited. It was by your parents, by teachers, but it was something that you believe about God that was passed on to you. But there comes a time in every believer's life when you must examine what you have been taught using the scriptures as the filter to decide if these ideas pass or fail the test. And it requires some critical thinking. There are too many believers that are stagnant in their spiritual development with this type of thinking being the furthest that they've ever allowed their belief system to advance. 
And the problem with this type of thinking is that it does not belong to you. It is inherited. It is passed down to you in your formative years. Just as children learn about life and, and things in school and, and writing and, and science and social studies, they also learn ideas about God. Even if it's not in a classroom setting, just the world around them, they are inheriting ideas about God. We need total validation from God's Word stamped upon everything that we believe. But we should examine what we believe with a right spirit. And the second thing that not everybody reaches and that what I hope to help us all, including myself, reach is that we have a deliberative theology. And that is when you make a critical examination of everything that you believe so that you can know the truth of God's Word. You deliberate it. You're, you're reasoning with it. Sometimes it takes deconstruction of your belief system. You have to deconstruct some things so that you can go back in and rebuild them according to God's Word. The embedded theology is head knowledge. That's as far as it ever gets. It's just in your head. But deliberative theology goes into your heart. And now it moves into the realm of revelation and understanding. And now it starts affecting how I live my life, how I treat my spouse, how I make decisions on the job. That deliberative, what do I believe about God? And how does that affect me on a Tuesday morning or a Thursday afternoon in my real life? That's what we want Scripture to do. The power of thinking like this is not in its ability to make you more intellectual. That is never the point. It is the transformative nature to make you more like Jesus. When we believe Scripture correctly, it helps us to be more like Jesus, to reflect His glory, all while growing in the wisdom and mind of Jesus Christ when we see the truth in the Bible. And I want us to see this and believe it, not because I say it, but because we see it in Scripture. That's why we preach like we do. I want you to see it in the text so that if somebody else comes along and says something, but they don't have the text, they're just spouting nonsense. You can say, no, I've seen this, not because a preacher said this. I've seen this in the text. I have been convinced by what is in the Bible, by the beauty in the Bible and by the glory of God that it is, arises from revealed truth. Paul said, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That's why we do what we do. So the reason I do that, set all that foundation before this particular sermon is because there's so much here that I want us to see from God's Word. So in John chapter 3 and verse 2, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now this was a really rare acknowledgement from the religious system that eventually executed him. I mean, the Romans carry it out, but it, the driving force behind this is the religious system. Uh, they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy and they're asking the Roman government uh, to carry out his execution. But at this point in the life of Jesus, the religious system is saying it's a spokesman coming to Jesus. We don't know if he's coming as a spokesman. We don't know if he's doing it as a one-off and nobody else knows. We don't know that. We just know that he is speaking to him one-on-one -on -one saying, we know, us Pharisees know you're a teacher come from God and God is with, with you. But they never grasped his identity. 
there was an awareness that they were dealing with a man that was sent from God, but they never really grasped the identity of Jesus Christ. And the response that Jesus makes to this statement has always struck me as out of place, because if it were us in the conversation, we may revel in the fact that a Pharisee has finally recognized my identity. You know, I am come from God and God is with me. Thank you for finally recognizing that. And we would jump towards Nicodemus' validation of our own self-worth. Yes, in fact, I am sent from God. I'm finally glad that you get it. That might have been our response, but not Jesus. He responds very differently than we would. Unmoved by the opinion of the crowd, the religious establishment, or even his followers, he was not quick to revel in the brief, opaque compliment from a respected leader. Instead, he responds in verse 3, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight, but put yourself in Nicodemus's place. What would you have thought of these words? Christianity is so saturated with the concept of a new birth that we immediately spiritualize the idea as we should, but Nicodemus did not have the context of Christian culture to understand the words of Jesus. The imagery in his mind when Jesus said this must have bordered, been on borderline absurd. If there was any question regarding the sanity of this man that claims to be God's son, now maybe there is conclusive evidence because he is saying you need to be born a second time. And so Nicodemus asks him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now Albert Barnes, who is a, wrote a lot of commentaries on scripture, this is what he wrote. He said, it may seem remarkable that Nicodemus understood our Savior literally when the expression to be born again was in common use among the Jews. The word with them, the Jews, meant a change from the state of a heathen to that of a Jew. But they never used it as it applies to a Jew. A Jew would not have been told they need to be born again because they were already there because they were Jewish. Because they supposed that by his birth he was entitled to all the privileges of the people of God. When our Savior, still reading from Barnes, when our Savior used it of a Jew, when he, affirmed it, it's, when he affirmed its necessity of every man, Nicodemus supposed that there was an absurdity in the doctrine, something that surpassed his comprehension. <clears throat> and he therefore asked whether it was possible that Jesus could teach so absurd a doctrine, as he could conceive no other sense as applicable to a Jew, as that he should, when old, enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Nicodemus could not comprehend that there was something beyond Judaism that could bring a person into the kingdom of God. And the confusion in the mind of Nicodemus is evident in his struggle to comprehend what Jesus is even trying to reveal. And Jesus' response to that question is another piece of the tapestry that flows through Scripture to tell the story of the redemptive purposes of God. We witness Jesus introducing a new covenant here that allows both Jews and Gentiles into God's kingdom. Because Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, like produces like. Gorillas do not give birth to zebras. Gorillas give birth to gorillas. Flesh begets flesh, spirit brings spirit. This is what Jesus is trying to convey. For several years I lived <clears throat> on the outskirts of our town 
and the house was bordered on two sides by farmland and the farmers would alternate the crops every year. One year they would grow corn and the next year they would grow soybeans and uh, I used to when I'd mow my yard, it's a pretty good sized yard and I'd have this riding mower and I'd, I mean my grass ran right up against uh, the soil where they would grow the, the crops and so I'd get the mower right up against there. And I always enjoyed looking to see the progress week by week of the crops when they planted the seeds. <clears throat> and especially soybeans. It just the soybeans seemed to me to, to be more fascinating for whatever reason. But I would study the progress of the harvest and at the end of the season, there would be uh, the, the tractors out there, even at night, uh, harvesting the soybeans and the corns and, and the corn. And it just, especially with the corn, it would just cover the house and the car and inside the house with dust. You couldn't keep it out. All that, uh, just the dust from all that would cover everything. But it was always enjoyable watching the progress every day coming home and just watching how, <clears throat> how the crops grew. Now, I never witnessed the seed going into the ground. I never was there when they planted it. <coughs> but I'm sure that when I saw corn coming up, it came from a corn seed and when I saw soybean coming up it came from the seed of a soybean. Uh, that much I'm confident of. Now you may say that sounds absurd that you would take time to explain that but it is a principle of life and the new birth that Jesus is teaching that this is the way the world works. Like produces like. The Apostle Paul taught us this and how it applies to our lives when he says do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that will he also reap. Jesus is making it clear to Nicodemus that he's not speaking of a physical birth. He's speaking of a spiritual rebirth. He's teaching Nicodemus and us that our spirit can only be renewed through his spirit, not through the works and means of flesh. Our flesh is that vile, carnal nature that is inside each of us that can never generate that flow of eternal life. And what the flesh births is carnal and temporary, what the Spirit births is holy and eternal. There are many allusions in the Apostle Paul's writings referring to the Old Testament law in terms of the flesh. He, he equates law with flesh. It's a recurring theme in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and the epistles is that the law is insufficient to bring salvation to people. So the statement by Jesus when He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, is the fountainhead of the New Testament doctrine that touts the supremacy of Jesus Christ far and above the law, the flesh, what we can do. Now this principle carries application in everything that we do in life and, and ministry and just, just everything that we do in general. And it is unlikely that we struggle with whether or not we should follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws. I may be wrong about that, but I think most people today don't struggle with whether or not I should be able to eat pork or bacon because the Jews couldn't um, and so I can't because I'm a Christian. Uh, but we do struggle with trying to get spiritual results from carnal methods. We desire to see a move of God's Spirit in our families and churches, and yet people continue to pour massive amounts of time and energy into methods and programs that have no spiritual basis, thinking that this program will produce spiritual results. Only spiritual endeavors produce spiritual results. Like produces like. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we will reach our generation that is dead in trespasses and sins. Another principle of the new birth is that we are children of the wind. 
There is something significant about the life of every spirit-filled believer. It's difficult for us to grasp the significance of that miraculous event that took place when God filled us with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. He's using an analogy that Nicodemus got that we all get today. You go outside on a windy day and there's trees around and you, you see the effects of the wind. You see it blowing the flags. You see it blowing garbage through the streets. The branches are moving. I don't see the wind. I don't know exactly where it's coming from or where it's going, but I know it's here, not because I see it, because I see the effects that it has on everything around me. So, Jesus said, is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is us as Spirit-filled believers. We are temples of His divine presence. Jesus is making a clear connection between the wind and the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God moves like the wind when it birthed the church into existence. Now, I've said this before, and I, I hate it when preachers repeat themselves too often, uh, so I try not to do that. But I, if it's ever relevant, it's relevant here, that in the Bible, both in the Old Testament, which is written mostly in Hebrew, and in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, there is only one word in both Hebrew and Greek for wind and spirit. The Hebrews had their word, the Greeks had theirs, they made no distinction. Wind and spirit were one word and one concept. Uh, now they may differentiate the meaning at times uh, in the context of what they're talking about, but as far as the word, there is one word that is used. So this is relevant. Think about Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. So the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit that uh, comes on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, it says it came like a mighty rushing wind. This would make sense because spirit and wind are interchangeable in their mind. This is how the scripture works. There is an appeal to all of us to be spirit-led. We are full of the Spirit of God and God is always on the move. God never stops moving. And the wind of His Spirit that moves through us, that moves us through life, that gives us direction, it creates a sense of flow, aligning us with His will and His purpose in tandem with what the Spirit of God is doing and what God's Spirit is saying. And the lives that we lead because of this every day do not mirror the lives of people in our culture who do not know Christ. We are children of the wind. We are consumed by the breath of God. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That was Old Testament when people were not really spirit-filled. But how much more in the New Testament is, God, is God's Word orders our steps and we have God's Spirit inside of us moving and guiding and directing us through life. I've never ran into somebody in Walmart uh, that I thought was in need or needed to talk to about God or somebody who had walked away from God. I've never ran into someone on the street that I thought was a coincidence. I've never thought those were coincidences. I've always felt the steps of a good man are order of the Lord, that the, we are children of the wind and God is moving us through life, giving us direction. We move in patterns that seem foreign to those not directed by the wind. Now, after stretching the imagination of Nicodemus and challenging what he believed, Nicodemus still couldn't comprehend what Jesus was saying. Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? How could I be born again, Jesus? 
And the answer that Jesus gave is powerful, and it sheds light on what Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus. And this is, I think this is one of the key verses and ideas of understanding the new birth in John 3. And this is the question that Jesus asks Nicodemus. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, How is it that you are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I just said? Now that shines light on what Jesus was trying to convey. The verse, this verse is key to understanding what Jesus taught Nicodemus. He's telling Nicodemus that as a master of Israel, as a Pharisee, as a rabbi, Nicodemus, you should know these things. You should understand what it means to be born of water and wind. How is it that you know your scriptures and you don't understand what I'm saying. The inference is that someone well-versed in the Old Testament writings should understand clearly what Jesus meant. Why? It's because the Old Testament is filled with stories and analogies about wind and water and about God delivering His people through water and wind. The story of the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea was a miraculous deliverance of the Jews through the power of the water and the wind. The writer of Exodus said that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. In Ezekiel, his vision of the valley of dry bones paints the perfect picture of the breath of God giving life to the lifeless. Ezekiel said that God said to him, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Nicodemus missed the whole idea of what Jesus is trying to say. And Jesus says, how is it that you're a ruler of the Jews? You know your scripture. You live in this, and yet you don't understand what I'm saying. You must be born again of water and of spirit. And the examples in the law and the prophets show how God gives new life through water and wind. He took the idea of being born again literally, Nicodemus did, a rebirth in the flesh. And Jesus said, no, Nicodemus I have something much more glorious and eternal in mind. It's that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. The rebirth that Jesus spoke of does more than modify a person's life. It transforms it through the generating, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. New birth leads to new life and a new way of living. This idea of of new birth, this is a metaphor. It's just a way that Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus that, hey, there is something from above. You can be born again from above. If you study this out, it more literally means to be born from above. It does mean a second birth, but the the inference that always doesn't make it through in translations that is there in the original text refers to being born from above, a heavenly birth. You can have a new life through being born again. If you're tired of your life now under sin, you can have a new life in Jesus Christ. Every one of us know this. We've all been there. We've all lived a life that was under sin. And we know that through the power of the new birth, 
through the power of God declaring us righteous, through regeneration, uh, all these things. New birth is just one way, it's one metaphor in the New Testament of saying the same thing over and over again. It's about coming to Christ. It's about being united with Christ. It's about being regenerated. All of these terms, all these ways we see this in, in the New Testament, they're not different experiences. It is us being regenerated in Jesus Christ, being united with Christ. And here Jesus calls it being born again. And it is a wonderful experience. And it's not just that experience. It's that that experience of being born again leads to new life. It needs to, leads to new values. It leads to new ways of making decisions, of new ways of treating other people, of new ways of making priorities. All of that being born again transforms our lives in radical ways, and I thank God for that. Father, thank you this morning for your word. <clears throat> I thank you for your spirit that is here, that is opening up our understanding and touching our hearts and our lives and our minds. I thank you, Lord, that we even have the opportunity to be born again. And Lord, we're going to continue in your word to, uh, in the coming days and weeks to explore and to understand uh, how this works and, and the, the ramifications of what it means to be born again. But for this morning, Lord, let it be enough just to simply know that we can be born from above or that we are not <clears throat> destined or determined to be unregenerate sinners forever but Lord that there is an experience for anyone that comes into Christ Lord to have a brand new life through the power of the new birth I pray today Lord that as we go on our way this week that you would bring these scriptures back to our remembrance it can be so easy to get caught up in life and just to forget these things but Lord plant this seed in our hearts today and bring bring these things to our remembrance throughout the week as we're living our lives that it would transform us and affect us in mighty ways Lord and bring us back next week keep your hand upon us this week but bring us back on your day next week Lord and let us continue to be worshipers of you we ask this today in your name Christ Jesus amen God bless you this morning